Reveal, O God, your wonder to our eyes. Open our hearts to Christ's love. Disperse from our minds any darkness and fill our lives with your light. Protect us, O God, from thoughts without action. Guard us from words without life. Grant us wisdom to walk in your ways and open us always to the guiding of your spirit. Amen. Now, through the season of Easter, we've been reading stories from the book of Acts, that is, the Acts of the Apostles. And we've been reading these stories seeking ancient wisdom for what it means to be a 21st century church. So we've read stories that have engaged us in thinking about what it means to be a witness, sharing God's story, what it means to enter into and participate in God's imagination for the world, letting our imaginations seek after God's imagination. And today we hear a story about Paul who does some difficult things and has difficult conversations. He seeks to communicate and live his faith in a place that, where such faith is countercultural. Now, the publisher of the Christian Century magazine is a man named Peter Marty, and he recently reflected in his column in the magazine about how we as the church are asked to accept difficult challenges with grace and with love. Now, Marty writes about a story of a family that seldom goes to church anymore. And this apparently is because of modern technology, which allows them to sit at home and watch the service on their computers. So kids get to play, and they get to have their coffee and tea at hand and can watch leisurely, and even, if necessary, later in the day if they would like. An internet video stream makes all of this possible, and it makes worship easier. I don't want to disparage such technology. And it's interesting, though, that when I went back and read the article on the magazine's website, and I went and began reading through the comments on the column, people were reflecting on the technology. Is it helping the church or ruining the church, people seemed to argue. Most of the comments were about the subject of convenience. We either need to make it more convenient or people should just get to church. But I think most of these comments missed the point of the article. It's not really about a video feed or technology. The article was about welcoming an experience of church that inconveniences us, you and I, in such a way that changes human lives. Our lives, as well as the life of our neighbors. Now at a glance, Marty's column shares what is obvious. Church can be inconvenient. We wake up when we could have slept in. We drive across town to church, and I understand there are quite a number of you who pass a few other churches to get here. You drive extra distance. And for families, this even means getting kids dressed and fed and in the car to the church, into pews, and so on. But the difference between these two experiences is not the difference of location. 
The difference is really consuming church and being church. One is passive, one is active. What Marty suggests is that inconvenience is really about living a life that is not built around our desires and personal preferences. It's more about God's desires. In worship, we are invited into an experience to consider how God is in relationship with the world. Being the church means sitting next to people that we sometimes don't know. And it means building relationships with people who are different than ourselves. It means exploring gratitude in our lives, even during times when life is difficult. It means learning to serve others, and at times being willing to accept others serve us. All the while, learning to love as God loves. In worship, we thank God and align our actions and our thinking and our relationships with God. And and that is where deep meaning exists by embracing what is inconvenient. In his column, Peter Marty wrote... Inconveniences can hold their own deep value, especially when they ask us to experience a larger life than the one we typically design around our personal comfort. Today we read about the Apostle Paul, who finds himself in a rather unusual and difficult position. The community in Athens around the Areopagus invites him to share there at the outcropping why God matters. Now these are intelligent, cultured, sophisticated people. They are the go-getters, the movers and shakers. These are the people who make things happen. They're also diverse in their beliefs. That are radically, usually radically different than Paul's beliefs. And so for this reason, Paul's failure in addressing the crowd seems almost certain. Nevertheless, he accepts the invitation and he tells them about God, the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Paul tells them about God who created the heavens and the earth, who creates life and sustains it. He talks about God who is not far from us, rather is near to us. But the amazing part about Paul's message is as much the approach as the message itself. He could have told the Athenians that they were wrong and ignorant. He could have rejected them and their practices. And had he done so, well, maybe he was right. It would have been easier, that we know. Tell it like it is, drop the mic and walk away. But instead of turning away from the Athenians, Paul turns toward them. Instead of cutting them off, he creates a conversation. And churches, 
began all over coastal Mediterranean areas because of conversations like this one in Athens. In the first century, churches grew in Corinth and Thessalonica and Philippi and Rome and elsewhere because of conversations like this one. But failure is a clear outcome of Paul's ministry. Not everything works right, but it doesn't have to. Paul's message is not a call to perfection. That's God's work. Paul's message is to live a faith and a life in God beyond one's own. It makes me think of the great American proverb from Thomas Edison when he said, I have not failed, I have found 10,000 ways that do not work. A conversation about faith is an ongoing conversation. It's a conversation about difficult subjects. It's a conversation that is always active and requires continual engagement. Our 21st century church encounter similar challenges to those of the early church, those that Paul experienced, Paul and the other disciples of the book of Acts. There is glory and there is failure. There's beauty and there's challenge. Relationships that connect and there are relationships that strain. But in the middle of it all, God has given the people the church, and God has given those people grace. Being the church is about the experience of that grace and sharing it among one another. When we fully embrace what God desires the church to be, when when we discover that faith demands our whole self, our entire person, then we, like the early church, find ourselves on a mission to experiment with ways that we share our faith and our life with one another, even when it's difficult. Now, this experiment requires commitment, requires trying difficult things. It means doing things that we may not have done before, And as a result, our lives are inconvenienced as we embody God's grace in the world. We listen and we learn, we love. We sometimes call out to the congregation in prayer, even when it sounds like a cry. We plant, we pray, we build, we share. Now, writer Annie Diller knows how significant this commitment is. In an essay, she wrote, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke, she writes? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness that we wear straw hats and velvet hats to church 
We should all be wearing crash helmets. Dillard writes, us ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. Paul was willing to put on his crash helmet. And so in Paul's spirit, I want to tell you about a few people who are willing to put on the crash helmet. Emil Zadapak is remembered as the great Czech Olympian. In the 1952 Summer Olympics, he won gold and set Olympic records in the 500 meter and the 10,000, excuse me, the 5,000 meter and the 10,000 meter races. And the marathon was the third distance event that he was eligible for, so he decided to run the race, spur of the moment. The problem was that he'd never actually run a marathon before in his life. The great distance runner had never even attempted it. But he had an opportunity to do something that had never been done before, seeking gold in all three events. And at the starting line, he decided that he would pace the current world record holder, Jim Peters. And in the middle of the race, Emil and Jim were side by side running, and Emil turned and asked Peters if their pace was fast enough, and he responded, no. So Emil began to pick up the pace, and when he crossed the finish line, he not only won a third gold medal, he set a third Olympic record, and it's a feat that to this day has never been repeated. And at his accomplishment, Zadapek first said his now often repeated quib, if you want to run a mile, run a mile. But if you want to experience a different life, run a marathon. Zadapek experienced a different life because it stretched him towards something that he didn't know that he was capable of accomplishing. He accepted the challenge, he did something hard, and according to his fellow runners, he did so with modesty and humility. But Zadapak's amazing success would have never happened if he didn't attempt something that was way beyond what he knew he could do. Now I also want to tell you about a woman named Grace Lee Boggs. She actually lived not far from here, and she died in 2015, but she was our neighbor. She was the daughter of Chinese immigrants, and she pursued a college degree and then a Ph.D., And then she turned her life toward the service of people. She worked for the welfare of our city, for Detroit. Racial justice for African Americans, equality for women, opportunity for young people. Boggs once wrote, People are aware that they cannot continue in the same old way, but are immobilized because they cannot imagine an alternative. She wanted to help imagine those alternatives. 
And among her many accomplishments, Boggs started an organization called Detroit Summer. It's still operational through the Boggs Center, and it's an organization that welcomes young people from all around the country every summer to serve in the city. When it was started back in the 90s, they were planting gardens in empty parking lots before it was cool to do so. They gave dignity to people through city beautification. They offered home repair assistance. Boggs knew that the beloved community, defined by equality, that she so sought to create would not easily be achieved. But it didn't deter her, and it didn't deter her teammates from seeking a world without discrimination. Boggs did hard things. She started difficult conversations. Now, would you have second thoughts about entering these doors if an usher handed you a helmet or a life preserver? What if the pews had seat belts? What if the pew cushions could be served as flotation devices in case of a water landing and we let you know it every time we made the announcements? I hope it would make you nervous. But I also hope that you would boldly walk through these doors, grabbing the life jacket, preparing to paddle this big old coracle of wooden stone toward grace trusting that God is already heading in our direction. Reality is that the crash helmets and life preservers that we know are less startling, but they still require commitment. They still evoke a great power. They still open an expansive and explosive love that we know from God. So what if instead you were handed a list of, bit, list of people to visit and to be a friend to? What if it was cooking meals alongside friends or joining your voice in song? What if it was welcoming new members or turning to your neighbor simply to say, you belong here? or caring for the children while parents worship or attend committee meetings? What if it was writing letters to church friends that said, God loves you and we do too? Or sitting in the waiting room at a hospital? What if your what if was among the many ways that we share life together as a community? Being the church means becoming the church that God calls us to be, that God has made us to be. Being the church is about becoming the church that people need, you and I, our neighbors in our community. And God equips, God supports, God nurtures the people to be the church, even if we're not sure we're ready, even if we're not sure We have the gifts. What we have in this room is what we need. It's about joining our hands to offer our gratitude that we can be those who live and move and have our being because Christ has called us to it.
being the church is difficult because God is calling us deeper and deeper to become the people that God is calling us to be. And on some days, like Paul, that means trying to do what we're not sure we're able to do with some mixed success. On some days, it means being like Emil Zadopek, trying to do what we're not sure we're able to do, and in the end, seeing God's beauty. And some days, like Grace Lee, means welcoming people and supporting their well-being, even when it's hard, even when we're not sure we can do it all. Sometimes it means trying something new for the possibility that we might just do what we didn't know was possible. All power and glory, all wisdom and wonder belong to the Lord our God. May we receive it daily. May it be so today and always. Amen.